worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and glory and honor and blessing. That beautiful refrain of Revelation 5, verse 12, which in many ways is a bit of a background to that song that we just sang together. Oh, how great is the worthiness of our Savior, and we're delighted tonight to be able to offer Him the heartfelt obeisance and homage that you and I would wish to direct toward Him. The title of the lesson this evening, as you no doubt can already see, and was already, of course, placed in the bulletin earlier, has to do with some consequences of disobedience. And in many ways, the development through the lesson tonight will have a center point that to some extent is an extension of the lesson we noted last Sunday evening. Now I realize back at that time we were focusing on the providence of God, especially in the life and times of Esther. And as we've reflected upon that interesting sequence of events, there was an issue that arose in some of those passages that we didn't discuss at that time, but that will be a point of discussion tonight. As we begin this lesson, of course, there's much to say about the concept of obedience. And so this opening slide is one that is extremely basic. Nothing greatly new here, but isn't it true that we understand so easily that throughout the wonderful Word of God, it is enjoined upon us to obey Him. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That which is our whole, our nature, our character, that which is the most basic elemental desire upon God's part for us is to fear Him and to obey Him, to keep His commandments. But having said that, I might be quick to say that not only is that matter taught in both the Old and New Testament, it's taught frequently. It would be difficult, I suspect, to turn more than a page before one finds some encouragement some discussion wherein the needfulness of obedience takes a very important place. As easy as it is to say that, we all understand that God does leave the ultimate obedience to Him as our choice. And thus we can choose to disobey if we wish, but we can also choose to obey. But tonight, what are some of the consequences that go with disobedience? Now, it may well be that one principal consequence has already rushed into your thinking. And that one we will certainly mention on occasion, but it's not the principal one that we will in fact look at in earnest tonight. And so this next slide will form a more complete foundation as we consider more interestingly some of what God has to say about obedience and that which goes with it. In fact, isn't it true that in every age... It has been the case that God has encouraged, in fact, insisted upon human obedience to Him. We could start back in the patriarchal era. In Genesis 18, verse 19, for example, In consideration of Abraham, there God said, I know him, that he will command his children after him, that they will keep my commandments. One of the things that was so highly commended relative to Abraham was that he will teach, instruct, and insist in his children that they would keep the commandments of God. Not only could we mention Abraham, but of course earlier in regard to Adam and Eve, they were in fact given a commandment and they chose to disobey. And of course, what consequences came upon them? One of the things you'll quickly see with me is that this lesson and that title could have been developed 
in any number of ways, with any number of Bible examples, likely the one that I have selected will not be the one you would have chosen, but the point will be clear enough. But if Adam and Eve had chosen to obey, how would things have been different? What came upon them because of their disobedience? Could we not list a few? They were thrust out of that precious paradise called Eden. And they were not allowed re-entrance into it due to a flaming sword and a cherubim that guarded the way of the tree of life. They no longer had access to that tree of life. They no longer had the privilege, if you please, of going about in the innocence that would come with nakedness. All of that was lost forever. Isn't it easy to see the consequences not only have bearings on what would be seen as the day of judgment, it had consequences in here and now. Look at the next passage in Deuteronomy 28. In fact, that's a lengthy chapter of some 68 verses, but it divides wonderfully into two rather large portions. The first 14 verses of that chapter highlight in critical matter the thrust that goes with and the blessings that accompany obedience. If you will obey me, God told Israel, this is what you will enjoy. But from verses 15 to 68, the entirety of the remainder of that chapter is an exhaustive listing of what will befall Israel if they chose to disobey. And so God encouraged obedience, but at the same time He said, this is what will befall you if you were to choose to disobey. And the list is troubling. The list is shocking. The list in many ways is very, very prompting. But with that in mind, could I ask you to note the third one? As Joshua approached the end of his days in Joshua 22, 5, he encouraged Israel, I'm soon no longer to be here, but obey God's commands. All of them. With diligence. And as Joshua made that statement, how sweet it is to hear this aged servant of the Lord encouraging the people of his day in light of what was the most critical, in light of what was the most needful thing for them. You'll notice the two remaining passages in the Old Testament, one drawn from 1 Samuel 15, which interestingly is our text in the Sunday morning class these days, but having to do with Saul and his choice to disobey and Samuel's confrontation of him. But you'll notice in verse 22, didn't Samuel say, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken in the fat of rams. It may well be that Ezra could be listed in Ezra 7, verse 23, when he enjoined upon the people of Israel, even late in the Old Testament, the needfulness of being faithful to obey all of God's commands. I say those things to say that it might be easy to say, well, hold it, preacher, that's all Old Testament. And we don't live beneath that law anymore as far as the law that makes us right with God. What about the New Testament? Does it say much about obedience? I have again selected but few, but didn't Jesus say, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And therefore we notice that the keeping of God's commands, the keeping of the Lord's commandments, is a litmus test of our love. If I love Him, I'll do what He says. This might be a good time to observe what obedience really is. Obedience is doing that which one is told, the way that one is told to do it, for the reason that one is told to do it. 
And if any of the three are absent, that's not obedience. So applied to God, that means one does what God says to do, the way that God says to do it, for the reason God says to do it. And if again any of those are absent, then we cannot have said that we've obeyed the Lord. Keeping that idea in mind, that next passage takes us to Acts 5.29. We ought to obey God rather than men. And so Peter highlighted in rather direct character that obedience to God is a basic requirement. Always above the demands of men. Not only that, in Romans 6.17, oh, how sweet it was when Paul addressed the church in Rome and said, God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. And being made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Isn't it clear then that obedience to the form of doctrine was a line of separation between being unrighteous and being righteous? between being unsatisfactory to God and being a servant of that which pleases Him. No wonder in those ideas. The last two take us to the book of 1 John. In chapter 2, we notice in verse 3 that obeying God's commands is a litmus test of knowing God. If we know Him, we will keep His commandments. Later in chapter 5, His commandments are not grievous. It could well be with those matters as background. Look at the next few points, none of which, again, are difficult to understand. But isn't the sense of them easy to appreciate? People often choose to disobey God. Despite all the encouragements and all the rewards that come with obeying Him, it is still the fact that, not only at large in the world, but sometimes you and I, Make the choice to disobey Him. And in so doing, passages such as these perhaps would would easily come before us. Judges 2 verse 2, wherein the people of that day, God said, you have not obeyed my voice. And then the question is asked, why have you done this? Isn't that a great question? They had disobeyed and God asked them why. They had no good answer. I suspect we don't either we perhaps have a moment of weakness. Or we perhaps, with lack of understanding, perhaps even ignorance, we move in directions that ultimately are disobedience, and yet we too have no good answer. No wonder in light of those things. Titus 1.16, did you notice in the reading tonight? As it was highlighted that here were some who professed that they knew God. In other words, they would, without any shame and without any ambiguity, say, I know God, and let me tell you about Him. But all the while, Paul said, they're disobedient. Their life was not connected to the fullness of the truth which God had revealed. And in so doing, though they professed one thing, they lived a different way. May you and I not fall into that hazardous trap. Because notice what these are that follow. Isn't it true, in light of the things we've learned so far tonight, that obedience to God will result in things being well? I say that because the language of the Old Testament so often puts it in that way. For instance, in Jeremiah 38, verse 20, the prophet told the people of his day, If you will obey the commands of God, then things will be well with you. 
they would enjoy the set of blessings or the set of, shall we say, pleasantries that would go with obedience to God. In many ways, that idea is echoed in Matthew 6.33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Do you note with me then that those who choose in their way of life to obey the Lord, God had stated both Old and New Testament that things would proceed well with them. I didn't select the, any of the examples from the book of Deuteronomy or the book of Leviticus, or the book of Numbers. If you choose to do a word search, pull out a concordance and look through those three books, you will find dozens of instances wherein God said, Obey my voice, keep my statutes, judgments, laws, and commandments, and it will go well with you when you enter the land of Canaan. So often, wording like that was presented may I suggest that we'll seek to make applications to our situation today. Because look at what's next. What if you choose to disobey? So often wasn't it true that God made note of problems, troubles, unpleasant matters that would come along with that choosing to disobey? If I could state it this way, those who choose to disobey are their own worst enemy. It comes back to haunt them far worse than the moment might in in fact suggest. I understand well that sin can bring its pleasures for a time. But oh, how the fruit is so bitter, which comes with disobedience. I've invited you to notice Leviticus 26. That, again, is a lengthy enough chapter. We'll not read all of it. But could I invite you to notice that beginning in verse 14 of that chapter is a lengthy listing of some of the things that Israel would experience if they chose to disobey. Things like your crops are not going to be plentiful. Your health is not going to be good. The nation is going to be, in fact, oppressed, and you will serve a foreign nation. Things such as disease will be rampant. Your children will be harmed, and not only that, you'll be taken captivity, and the crops that you have managed to raise, somebody else will enjoy the benefits of it. And that's just a list of few. You can again read the lengthier portion of that list to gain a feature that God was telling them not only in eternity, but even now. Disobedience to God brings its price. And we are our own worst enemy when we choose to disobey. As far as highlighting a particular application of that, could I invite you to notice three cases, or in fact two really, that quite often are brought to bear when the subject of disobedience is raised. And let me preface these by saying that we're very familiar with both of them, and they are often used by some to accuse God. May I say again, to allege something of God. Consider the first one. In the scene touching the events of Numbers 15, may I at least remind you what was undertaken in that chapter, and then I will make the allegation that some are quick to make. The children of Israel were proceeding toward the land of Canaan. They had left Sinai, but hadn't yet finished the remaining years of wandering. 
in Numbers 15, it is true that they had already had the spies come back and they chose to believe the ten spies. They chose to say, the land is great, but we can't take it. They chose to believe in those ten rather than in Joshua and Caleb. It is in that light that this chapter then points out in verses 32 and following, there was a man who was gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. Now, it was interesting. Some had witnessed what he was doing. They, in fact, arrested or at least kept this man because they didn't know what to do with him. God told Moses, stone him. Take him without the camp and let all the congregation stone him. And so they did. And some, at least in that light, are quick to make an allegation. Well, God apparently is unfair. He's unjust. To command that a man doing nothing more than gathering sticks on the Sabbath, this is unreasonable. And surely one would not wish to honor and worship a God like that. You will on occasion find some who are quick to make a statement about that scene, about God in that way. Would you please hold that thought in mind as we at least mention a couple of things. First of all, isn't it true that God had plainly said that one was to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, and they were to do no work on that day? That was, in fact, one of the Ten Commandments, commandment number four. Not only that, later on in Exodus 31, verses 14 and 15, more elaboration was given about that concept, namely that there was to be no servile labor on that Sabbath day. Later on in Exodus 35, it was even pointed out, you were not to kindle any fire on that Sabbath day. I say all of that to say, wasn't it true that God's command was plain? His command was straightforward. His command was evident and easily understandable. And this gentleman had chosen to disobey it. Now, the consequences of that disobedience were his immediate death in that case. Holding that thought in mind, we'll revisit it later in the lesson. But the allegation, again, that some would make reflects upon the integrity of God. Look at another case, the one involving Uzzah. We are well acquainted with the scene concerning Uzzah revealed to us in 2 Samuel 6 and in 1 Chronicles 13. In both of those chapters, we have that interesting record of when the Ark of the Covenant was not in Jerusalem, but that David, because Jerusalem was now his capital, he wanted the Ark so that he could, in essence, solidify both the civil government and the religious center in the same place. Now, we can't accuse David in the wrong for desiring this, but the method in which it was brought about was very problematic, wasn't it? And so they loaded the Ark of the Covenant on a cart, and it was drawn by some oxen. And there came a time in its journey when the oxen, the text says, stumbled. And Uzzah reached forth his hand to steady the Ark. And David made this observation. God brought a breach upon Uzzah, and Uzzah's life was taken at that moment. One more time, some are quick to accuse God. Here was a gentleman who perhaps had the finest of intentions to in fact keep this precious piece of furniture from maybe being damaged. And yet God took his life. Some would say God was unreasonable. 
Some might say that God was unfair. Some might say He did not take proper consideration of the earnestness of the moment. However you wish to state it, those who would so say make an accusation against God's wisdom, against His understanding, and against that which He chose to do. But keeping all of that in mind, as you close that slide with me, all of that begs another question. In each case, isn't it true God's command had been plain? They knew how the ark was to be moved. Even David, two chapters later in 1 Chronicles 15, would admit it. And he even admitted who was the one that should have been moving it. So it was not something that was unknown. And yet in that disobedience, we notice the consequences were dire. May I invite you now to develop a point from the lesson last Sunday night. We noticed in that lesson a development surrounding Haman. Now, if I could just take a moment to remind us, we learned in that interesting book about how that God's people were in a perilous condition because Haman had concocted a scheme in which not just one Jew, namely Mordecai, it's true Mordecai had failed to honor Haman, he would not bow before him, but Haman not only wished to rid himself of Mordecai, but of every single Jew on earth. Could I again remind you, the nationality at the time was such that every Jew alive was within the confines of the rule of Ahasuerus. And when he gave the edict, the decree, that every Jew in the empire could be slaughtered on the 13th day of the 12th month, that would have eliminated the Jewish race. It would have eliminated it. And yet in that connection, we remember Haman's plot, his scheme was in fact overturned because of God's providence leading Esther and Mordecai to do the things that ultimately led to the salvation and deliverance of God's people. But five times in the book of Esther, there is a statement made. Five times. I would like to perhaps read the first one. Would you look with me particularly to Esther chapter 3 verse 1? To give you a little bit of a hint as to what's coming, it is a description of Haman. Look with me how he is described. After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. And the wording there is echoed four more times. In each case, we find that Haman... Sometimes we're told who his father was, this gentleman named Hamadatha. But you'll notice he is called an Agagite. And may I again say five times that occurs. I would suspect that you're very familiar with some other descriptions of peoples in the Old Testament. You have Hivites and Hittites and Amorites and maybe others. But you might wonder about an Agagite which is the description of this gentleman, this man named Haman. On the slide, could I ask that we develop that point, for that's the central part, and a very interesting one, it seems to me, for the lesson this evening. The fact that Haman was an Agagite, if you look about the middle of that slide, that word suggests apparently the following. It was a designation for the king of Amalek. Now, you might recall that as we often encounter the Amalekites in the Old Testament, 
It was a people who, quite frankly, did not do God's people very well. They attacked them in rather uncharacteristic ways. And in fact, it is in that regard I would perhaps already fill in a point which you might now make with me. Do you recall that when in 1 Samuel 15, the God of heaven through Samuel told Saul to go and destroy all of the Amalekites, every one of them, men and women, animals alike, and even children. All of them were to be slaughtered. All of them were to be eliminated. And you and I well recall that King Saul chose to disobey God. He chose to leave alive Agag, which as you and I have just learned, appears to be a reference to the designation of the king of Amalek. And so indeed, Saul left alive, Amalek, uh, left alive Agag, the ruler, if you please, of the Amalekites. And as we are learning on Sunday morning these, these current days, it would seem that in leaving the best of the animals, it would appear some of the references even indicate that he left alive some of the people as well. I'll simply say that this way. We know that Saul disobeyed. Later on, he even himself admitted it. That he was motivated by what the people wanted. And in his weakness, he did not carry out the commandment of the Lord. But with that in mind, notice on the slide before us. We've now learned that with regard to Agag and perhaps some of those also in line with him, Saul allowed them to live. In his disobedience, he allowed them to leave. It is now that we can complete our record. What, were this, what was the consequence of that disobedience? We have already learned it in the book of Esther. 550 years later, one of the descendants that Saul should have destroyed was still alive and he troubled God's people. The gentleman that you and I have learned is Haman. You see, he was a descendant of those people that Saul should have destroyed. He was a descendant of those whom Saul should have eliminated. One can only wonder, if Saul had obeyed the Lord, would there have been a Haman in the days of Esther? You would, you would think not. If Saul had carried out that which God told him to do, would there have been a perilous situation in the days of Esther that would have demanded the providence of God acting on the deliverance of His people? Haman, as you and I have learned, was a very egotistical man who was set on eliminating the Jewish people. Could I again ask each of us to at least ponder, Due to the disobedience of Saul, notice the problems that came to God's people years later. Make that application today. When you and I choose to disobey, the impact may not just be tomorrow. Oh, it might be for sure. But their generations may pass before that bears its terrible fruit. And it could be that your and mine great-great-grandchildren will be the ones who so suffer due to a particular choice and disobedience that we made in the year 2021. Notice again, 550 years approximately passed between the terrible choice of Saul to disobey the Lord and the rise of a man named Haman in the days of the book of Esther. 
Had there been no disobedience in Saul's day, likely no Haman for Esther to deal with. Doesn't it make us ponder about sometimes the bitter and sometimes tremendous fruit that disobedience can bring? Isn't it true that the disobedience there, maybe it was thought in 1 Samuel 15, we're only going to save these so that we can in fact use them to aid us in serving God. That intent made no difference. God's command was plain. It was clear. It was easily understandable. And yet, in Saul's choosing to disobey, what bitter fruit it brought to his own people. Now, isn't it true? We'd be quick to say that Saul's disobedience cost him. He was removed as the king of Israel. His dynasty was not to continue. Another better than he would become the next king. And that by itself was notable. But notice the impact of his disobedience in regard to later matters when an Agagite named Haman caused such perilous trouble for the people of God. As we close that particular slide, could I not ask us to notice there's a principle in this that is rather often stated in the wording of the wonderful Word of God. In Psalm 9 verse 17, What is there said about any nation that chooses to forget God? Now notice, here is a nationality of people, whatever they may be and wherever they may be. And if they choose to forget God, we are told in that passage how terrible will be their lot. Consequences will come their way. And so here we often pray for our leaders and for our nation and for the movement of our people that we might move in a direction that would be more consistent with the people and the nature of God's revelation. And oh, how pertinent a prayer that is. In 1 Corinthians 5 verse 6, notice how it applies to the church. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And so if sin is tolerated, if it is encouraged or endorsed, it will ultimately lead to behaviors on the part of others that will not be pleasing to God. To say all of that maybe is to say these final thoughts to our lesson this evening. Consequences to disobedience are very serious. We have seen in the person of Haman an Agagite, one who apparently was of the very lineage and descendants of those who that should have been destroyed, And because they were saved, because they were tolerated to live against God's command, ultimately what consequence that brought to God's people. When you and I choose to disobey God, it will negatively impact us. It will negatively impact our family. It will negatively impact perhaps many years later others that we would never ever want to harm or trouble. I'm sure Saul never would have wanted to cause the people of Israel the kind of trouble that Haman had to cause them, where they had to dwell in sackcloth and ashes and find, try to find some way to be saved from that terrible decree of, of, of the days of Haman. But yet, it would seem that Saul's disobedience was one piece to the puzzle that led to that very event. Tonight, as you and I consider ourselves... May we use a lesson like this as a motivation to obey. And even though the devil will try, of course, to cover up any serious consequence to to disobedience, may we think about Haman and may we think about Saul and always remember 
The disobedience is not a minor matter. It will have great consequences both now and hereafter. It could be in this assembly tonight that each of us, as we analyze ourselves, maybe we have begun to tolerate disobedience. Maybe we've lived among it and maybe we've allowed it not to bother us much. I hope that this lesson will prompt us to allow it to bother us again. If we're living in disobedience, that should trouble our conscience. It should bother our being so much so that we would wish to do something about it at once. Because as we learn today, that's urgent. Tonight, this song of encouragement has been chosen. And if you find yourself disobedient to the Lord, do something about it. Do what the Lord would want you to do. Come at once rushing back to His faithful side. If you as an erring child of God would wish to do that this evening, we'd be honored to pray on your behalf. We'd be honored to take note of your repentance and confession. And certainly what a sweet exodus you could make from this building as you are right again with God. But if you would wish to become a Christian, let tonight be the night to do that. Believing in Jesus, repenting of your sins, confessing His name, and being baptized. And if we could be of some help in either of these ways, or merely as offering prayers of strength and fortitude, we'd be happy to do any. Because it's still true that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And if we could be of help, won't you come while together we stand and sing? <laughs>